From the Cairo Radio Newsroom in Seattle, I'm Dave Ross, and these are the Ross Files. The debate we're having over the proper use of force will, I think, eventually boil down to how police are trained. And no one knows more about that in our state than former King County Sheriff Sue Rohr, who was the executive director of the Criminal Justice Training Commission. Their facility is there in Burien. So just give me your uh, off-the-top take on what happened in that Minneapolis incident. I, I find it hard to even find the right words to describe it. I think it was a tragedy. I'm disgusted by it. It's an embarrassment to our profession. I, I just I can't come up with strong enough language. Was it a failure of training? I don't think so, Dave. I really think that, and I'll tell you why I don't think it was a training issue. It's because the officer appeared to be completely indifferent. Mm-hmm. And he seemed to be indifferent to the harm that he was inflicting. And his fellow officers didn't intervene either. And so... When, when I see that, this is a situation where we don't have split-second decision-making or rapidly evolving circumstances. What we have is a lack of caring, a lack of concern. And what that signals to me is there is an issue with the culture. Hmm. Now, changing culture um, is very difficult and, in my opinion, takes a generation to make lasting change. Training absolutely impacts the culture, but it's not a it's not like a booster shot. You don't you don't send somebody to a training class to undo a lifetime of experience and wiring in their brain. And you don't change behavior long term with rules and punishment. Punishment will change behavior quickly for the short term. But if you want to see enduring change in behavior and enduring change in the culture, that takes a lot of time. And it, it's not just you. The, the problem with the police culture is not insular. It, the police department exists inside the ecosystem um, of our society. And officers work in an ecosystem that is not set up to consider the harm done when somebody's taken in cust- into custody or arrested, it's not considering the harm done to the community. So are you saying that the, the police culture sort of squeezes the humanity out of the people who become cops? No, I'm, I'm saying what, what happens is our society has tough on crime is one of the most politically popular um, mottos we've heard since the 1970s. Oh, and our society promotes tough on crime um, it's only been in the last couple of years that we've started talking publicly about harm reduction. So tough and on so, crime then translates to knocking heads anytime somebody calls the cops in? No, I, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying the overall approach to how we try to achieve public safety. To, traditionally, that approach has been one-dimensional. It's been all about enforcement. Mm-hmm. And until we step back and look at what contributes to crime— and it isn't just one thing, and it isn't just one person. Just like the, the issues we're seeing in law enforcement, you know, we, those of us in law enforcement desperately want to say, oh, it's just a bad apple. But it, that, that's getting pretty hard to, to hold up. Now, again, the reason that some officers engage in this kind of misconduct is because many of them believe that 
tough on crime, just arrest people at all costs. And all of our systems of measurement, the things where we judge success or failure in law enforcement, currently those metrics are all about how many arrests did you make? Really? We have not come up with a good way to measure how successfully did you build trust in your community today? How successfully did you engage the community to work with the police to keep the community safe? We just don't have a good way to measure that yet. Well, is there the sense that if, if the police force, if a police uh, officer shows any reluctance to arrest or um, any weakness at all, that suddenly the criminal element will rise up and take over? I mean, wh- what, where does this, this, uh, this culture stem from? Well, I, I think that's the culture that exists in our society. Again, the, poli- the police department is a reflection of society. We hire police officers from the community. Now, it might not be the geographical community, but it certainly is the cultural community of what we expect in this country. Another terrible conflict that officers have is the community is not united in what they want. We, we've spent decades talking about community policing and working with the community, but the officers have to figure out which community do I listen to? Do I listen to the woman in Central Park who calls and makes a, a false allegation against a bird watcher? Or do we listen to the community who says, you know, leave us alone and just let us go about our lives and then 10 things in between. Yeah. Well, I mean, in that case, the officers responded and realized there was nothing going on. So correct. They didn't arrest him. So that was a good outcome there. You're not going to. Frankly, Dave, I'm telling you, that's how most interactions happen. You would be shocked. Some of the calls that come into the communication center, um, a lot of them don't get dispatched. And some of them that do slip through, the officers do the right thing when they get to the scene. But there, there's always going to be a certain percentage of officers who don't rise above the toxic culture that they may be working in a particular community with. So back to Minneapolis, was, this the, was the problem there that they hired the wrong guy to be a cop or didn't vet him well enough? I have no idea what the background of that individual officer is. I do know that the Minneapolis Police Department has been engaged in a lot of efforts over the last at least five or six years to improve their training, to improve their policies. I listened to a, an interview with the mayor of Minneapolis a couple days ago, and he said, let's address the elephant in the room. And he said, it's the union. You know, we can't hold officers accountable because of the union. Hmm. And, and that that makes me angry when he says that, because the union doesn't have unilateral power to step in. The union gets their powers from the political structure. The union contract is bargained generally outside of the police department. Rarely is the contract bargained just between the police department and the union. So people who are elected to hire a police chief and set the priorities of a police department those are the people that are bargaining the contract. And so I found myself in the sheriff's office, and I know other, other law enforcement leaders around the state have, have not been able to directly influence what's in their collective bargaining agreement. But there's nothing we in the collective know- bargaining agreement that says we can kill somebody we don't like in our official capacity as a police officer, right? 
No, but the collective bargaining agreement strictly controls when we start seeing when we start seeing behavior that is leading up to something like this mm-hmm. and a law enforcement leader wants to hold somebody accountable or try to mitigate or manage that behavior, they have to operate within the collective bargaining agreement about what they can do to hold the officer accountable. But my point, Dave, is we have to step back and look at the bigger picture. It's not just the union. The, the the issue is the union has a lot of political power because yeah. they're given that political power. And if we really want to solve this problem, we need to look deeper into it and find out why do the unions have so much political power. Even our own state legislature, they are subject to the to the influence of the unions, and the unions have a very strong voice. I want to be clear, unions are very important and they need, our officers need to have the support of a union, but but we have to step back and look at the bigger picture of some of the things that we may not like about what the unions um, will do and require. Well, can you give me an example those, of what the union, what are the unions doing that uh, that uh, is harmful? Well, I'm not saying they're doing something that's harmful. Well, I know what they have I'm power, saying, but what I can't understand is if if a police officer commits what amounts to a crime, I don't see that unions have mm-hmm. any special status or power to say you may not prosecute that police officer. There may be laws that restrict it, no, but, and, we, but and you can I, change those laws, which we've done in Washington State. But, Dave, those laws are changed in partnership with the union. And so the legislature has to listen to all the voices around the table, community representatives, law enforcement representatives, and union representatives. But I want to be really clear on this point. I'm not talking about the union is supporting what happened to George Floyd. I do not think that's the case at all. What I'm saying is the union has a strong role in requiring and controlling the procedures under which an officer can be disciplined uh, you know, rewarded and punished, if you will, for behavior that continues to escalate and build oh, up. Oh, I see. For behavior that comes before the, the act that finally causes the uproar. Well, exactly. We talk about we want to have oversight in our police departments. We want to have early warning systems. These are all good things. But that doesn't mean the police chief or the sheriff can say, gosh, you look like a troublemaker. I just want to kick you out the door. That's not something that that they could or should do. But there's really tight rules on what they can do. And you and I both know of cases where officers have been terminated and ordered taken back by an arbitrator. So we need to look at we need to look at the arbitration laws. We need to look at what is at the table when those union contracts are being bargained. We are in much better shape, in my experience, in Washington State than other parts of the country. In Baltimore and Chicago, if you look at the collective bargaining contracts, law enforcement leaders don't have the power to discipline or terminate. Most of that power has been bargained away. And that is the responsibility of the elected officials, not the police chiefs. Hmm. Well, then instead of termination, you have to go for a conviction, right? That can't be bargained well, away. <laughs> Well, exactly. And then, Dave, let's talk about that a little bit. How rare is it for a jury to convict a police officer? Yeah. For us to say we need to rely on a criminal charge and conviction to change police culture, that's a teeny tiny step that we know is unlikely to happen. If I want to change behavior, I'm going to try a dozen different things 
to start moving the culture and start influencing the culture. And that's what we're doing really well in the state of Washington. We still have a long ways to go, and it's going to take a long time. But we've made really good progress. And we get people from all over the country asking us, what are you guys doing? How are you doing it? So, yes, we're not perfect. But, dang, we are getting a lot better. And we're getting better at listening to our communities. What about a system where if you are forced to rehire a police officer by the union and that officer goes on to commit a crime, that the union is held liable, just as the police department would be in the civil suit. It's not the union that orders the officer back. It's the arbitrator. This is a really, really important distinction. It's not the union. It's a non-law enforcement person. It's a a civilian community representative. So that's where the the accountability gets lost. That's exactly right. Did you hear the police chief of Santa Cruz? His philosophy was... If you see it, you own it. So his policy is if you see something going wrong in in an arrest and you don't speak up, then it's as if you had committed the same offense. Well, I think that's what we're seeing happening across across the nation. That's certainly what we're seeing in Minnesota. I think that that this is going to lead to a national discussion about what are the expectation of witness officers. I've I've been um, talking this week to colleagues across the country, and we're getting ready to implement um, an additional program about peer intervention. And we, we have many discussions and conversations in our classes at the academy about an officer's duty to intervene. We are going to bolster that and, and really address it more specifically about how to intervene, why to intervene. And uh, I think all of these pieces together you know, long over a long period of time will eventually change the culture. But it's, it's going to take time. Well, I, I don't doubt that. I'm just wondering how long, how patient the demonstrators are going to be. In terms of changing the culture, is there a way to do that by changing who you hire? I mean, I have this sort of fantasy that I saw a lot of really dedicated young people out there who are not only pretty smart and uh, up on the issues, uh, but also racially diverse. And they have stamina. They're able to stay out there for like three, four, five, six hours, some of them overnight. Wouldn't they be great candidates to be police officers? I mean, isn't there a way to, to recruit people like that to join the force? And over time, how, how could you not change the culture? Well, I think you can over time, but you're gonna, you're gonna, it's going to be a whole generation. And l- let, me, let me use an, over, an overused metaphor about a rotten apple. If you put a good apple into a bad barrel, the apple is eventually going to go bad. So we do, we do have to bring good people in, but we also have to pay attention to the barrel that we're putting them in. And that barrel is not just the police department. That barrel is the entire political structure that actually calls the shots on what police policy and what police priorities are going to be. It's not just the police department we need to be looking at. So so you think the, the whole, all of American society is just too, preoccupied with tough on crime without examining where that kind of attitude leads. It's that's one element of it, Dave, but we also have massive failures in all of our institutions that our mental health system is a disaster. Law enforcement ends up picking up the mess of that failed system. We have huge problems with income inequality, drug addiction, all of these things. We have massive institutional failures. And we expect a 25-year-old cop on the street 
to fix something that all of these systems were not able to address. What, what, what I think many people in our community want is for the police to get that, those ugly symptoms out of their sight. And, and I think that's one of the reasons tough on crime is so popular. Mm-hmm. It's, hey, if you, if you do law enforcement, get this person in jail, I don't have to look at the evidence of a failed mental health system, of, of income inequality, a failure in our education system for some students. So it, it's, big, it's bigger than just tough on crime. Tough on crime is the way we get these ugly problems out of our sight. Well, we've seen how well that's worked with the homeless population. <laughs> oh, my God. I, I think, and, and that, I mean, there's another perfect example. We call it the homeless problem. That's like saying we have a problem with fevers. You, you, wouldn't, you would never say that. You would say, well, we, here are the diseases that cause people to have a fever. Yeah. But, but all, all people seem to want is just get the fever down. Um, I don't want to invest in the preventative medicine that, that prevents people from getting sick and getting a fever. You said at one point that um, I believe you were talking about when you were sheriff trying to create trust in, in, the, in the community. You didn't make progress until you stopped trying to educate the public about what it was like to be a, a police officer. Can you talk about that? Yes. And I, I think, Dave, this is one of, one of the most embarrassing things that I have to admit about my career is how long it took me to understand that what I needed to do first was listen. And during the process of going through the negotiated rulemaking for, for the, the, the laws that came out of I-940, I learned so much just by listening. And that allowed me to build relationships with people and truly listen to what was, what was upsetting them. And after we got through that process, then we educated each other. But it always starts with listening, and, and that's one of the things that we are trying to emphasize at the academy is, yes, police officer, you need to step in and, and gain control of a chaotic situation, but sometimes the best way to gain control is to start with listening. So for the demonstrators who are now camped out, demanding change, and demanding it now, uh, address them and tell them what they can reasonably expect to happen. I, I don't. I don't have a magic solution, Dave. I'm not asking for a magic solution. Not... I think <laughs> I get the feeling that they're looking for a magic solution. So I thought that someone with your experience could at least give us a feel for how long you've you said a generation. That would mean like twenty years. Is that are you really mean mm-hmm. it's going to take that long? It's it, it's going to take twenty years to completely change the system. It took us hundreds of years to get where we are. It took decades for us to create a criminal justice system where we plea bargain 98% of our criminal cases. It took a long time for us to get where we are with the criminal justice system. So I would say to the protesters, you know, keep, keep raising your voices, but expand it beyond just the police. Because if they only, if they're only focusing on the police, they're missing the opportunity to really make systemic change. There, there, there's a great article that was written by ta Coates um, in The Atlantic, and he talks about fixing the problem with one police officer lets us off the hook for the deep systemic issues that cause the situation that the police officer ends up in. So I would say to the protesters, continue to be heard, but don't only focus your efforts on the police department. That's the most visible symptom of a system 
that needs to be reformed. Sue Rohr is executive director of the Criminal Justice Training Commission, one of the easier public jobs out there. Uh, I want to thank you very much for for coming on with us this morning. Good luck. Thank you, Dave. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Remember that when there's a longer version of the interviews on Seattle's Morning News, you can usually find it right here in the original form, unconstrained by the limitations of a live broadcast. And you can subscribe so that when someone says, did you hear what was on Seattle's Morning News, you can say, not only that, I heard the part that wasn't on Seattle's Morning News. So my advice is to subscribe. And then when we talk to an author, a politician, an entrepreneur, an artist, a scientist, a teacher, a journalist, a celebrity, you'll hear every word. I'm Dave Ross. Thanks for tuning in.